I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. As we enter the new year, it is probably a time when many of us are having a moment of self-reflection and to work out how we want to approach 2024. And that is why I'm so excited to be joined today by self-appointed Queen of Boundaries, Five Board Accredited Life Coach, Michelle Elman. Now, since first establishing her ethos as a Five Board Accredited Life Coach, she has used her qualifications as a Master Neurolinguistic Programming Practitioner, Master NLP Coach, Timeline Therapy, master practitioner and master hypnotherapist alongside her degree in psychology and her training in provocative therapy to create a specific niche of helping others with their love lives, personal lives and more both on and offline. She is a four times published best-selling author and she's grown a social following of over 500,000 and shares her insights with a loyal and highly engaged audience. She sounds like a superstar. She is a superstar. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. I just want to give a heads up that I have had COVID. So my brain is not on top form, but probably nor is yours either. You know what? We're both in the COVID bubble right now. And uh, it just feels very 2020 of us, really. Like, how dare we? your body telling you to slow down when when it's that time and like yesterday I had my back hurting and it was like oh yeah my body's literally telling me stop right now and there's this thing I always say where it's like you don't listen to your body when it whispers it will scream exactly that but look now I I do feel like this is just the perfect time to have you on the podcast I mean obviously we've been trying to get you on for a while and I think that you know the start of January is always a really nice moment where people do have that little bit of self-reflection and they set new goals and they have kind of a, a, a renewed approach to the new year basically and I think that you know I know that your journey into life coaching came from your own lived experiences and I guess before I look forward and talk about how other people might want to approach their goals and their 2024 I kind of also want to understand your context as to what's brought you to where you are I feel like this is the perfect time to have you on the podcast given that it's often you know a time of year where we kind of have a bit of self-reflection we set ourselves goals for the new year I guess but before I talk to other people's goals. I would really love to understand the context of what's brought you to where you are. You know, in my introduction, I prefaced so much experience as a life coach um, and so much that you've kind of built as an, as I guess, a sense of expertise within that space. And I know that some of that came from your own lived experiences as a young adult trying to heal from some of the trauma that you experienced growing up. So can you talk me through, I guess, your aha moment, the moment that you decided that life coaching was for you? Yeah, so I had 15 surgeries before the age of 20. So my childhood was very much growing up in hospital and yes, surrounded with medical trauma. And I was in the middle of my psychology degree when my last set of surgeries happened, which was when I was 19. And then I came out and the following year I got PTSD from all of that medical trauma. And Uh, It was the first time I went to therapy myself, which there's an ironic thing about people who seek out psychology degrees where I think it's a covert way of asking for help yourself, but also believing you don't deserve help. So you do it under the guise of helping other people when actually you're just trying to help yourself. And it was when I went to therapy for the first time that I realized talking therapy was not helping me and more specifically not helping my trauma. And what I've learned since is that when it comes to trauma, 
talking about the trauma over and over again can sometimes deepen the neurological patterns around it, which is why I was coming out of therapy sessions. And I was in therapy for about four months, but I was coming out and it felt worse. And it felt like every session was dragging me further and further into my trauma. And so I was in my final year of my psychology degree, was about to, um, well, not qualified to be a psychologist because I would go on to do a master's and a PhD, but I was about to graduate. And for the first time in 10 years, I'd wanted to be a psychologist since I was 10 years, 10 years old. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. I'm a big believer in you have to be able to practice what you preach. And I was like, how am I meant to have clients? And know secretly that it doesn't work for me. So I started looking at alternative approaches, which is how I found life coaching. And I actually ended up going to someone who specializes in havening, which is a type of hypnotherapy, who really helps me. And I just turned to him and said, whatever you're trained in, I'm getting trained in too. And the behind the scenes of the boundary stuff was because I'd lost, every time I went to hospital, I lost friends. My worst fear was losing friends again. And every time I went to hospital, I thought everyone would forget me because it did happen multiple times. Um, I remember coming back from a school and one of my friends saying, oh, we thought you'd died um and it was comments like that which made me the people pleaser I was because if you're so used to losing friends you will do anything to keep your friends in your life so no was not a word I knew boundaries was not something I knew and I just thought as long as I could be useful or I could be the reliable friend and I'm always the friend who says yes or who if you have a last minute dropout the person who can fill in or the person who will jump on a train to see you at least people will have me in their life because I'm useful more so than having the self-esteem to believe that someone would actually want me in my life in their life because I'm a person who is fun to be around or nice to spend time with. And I think as a result, it just meant I attracted a lot of people who just treated me like shit, to be honest. I don't know if I can swear, but <laughs> treated me rubbish. Um, and uh, it was actually a moment in that final year as well. I just entered therapy. Obviously, I was in an awful mind space at the same time because I was going through the PTSD. And I was dating someone who actually didn't even know I was in therapy or uh, had PTSD because I had so much shame around it at the time. And I was at a birthday party and I was literally there for maybe an hour. And I came out to like six missed calls, four texts, a Facebook message, a WhatsApp. And I pulled him back being like, what's the emergency? And he was like, oh, nothing. I just wanted to talk to you. Uh, you're usually at my beck and call. And it was the words beck and call that I was like, not only do you think that of me, but you had the nerve to say that to my face. And I, it just was like mulling over my head. I came home, all my housemates were in the middle of a fight as I came home. And by walking into it, I got entered into this argument. And in this argument, one of my housemates said to me, do you know how much we have to tolerate living with you? And it was just these back to back incidents that happened that I just like looked around at my life and was like, how the hell have I got to a point in life where I'm surrounded by people who treat me like crap? And But also because I think too, those two instances happening back to back made me actually go, what am I doing to allow this kind of behavior? Because it was two separate incidences. It was two separate areas of my life. My boyfriend wasn't part of my friendship group. Like, And it was like, 
this must be a me thing and so I think that really was the moment where I was like something has to change like there is no way I can have self-esteem when I'm surrounded by people who talk to me like this I mean like there's so much within that that first of all definitely on the people pleasing fun I can relate to and I, I know that we're going to come to that but I think specifically I just want to talk to your point of of going back um to the talking therapies thing because I think that, you know, you've presented yourself as a life coach and I, and I, I'm really interested to understand that specific world because I think that a lot of people think all therapies are alike, you know, talking therapies, talking therapies, talking therapies. There's no kind of difference between someone that might present as a therapist, as a psychologist, as a, as a life coach. So I guess for me, it's, it's so interesting that you went down the path of psychology, but actually pivoted and said, not for me, I'd actually rather go down the life coaching route and understanding, I guess, why specifically you feel life coaching is the best fit for what you want to do and how you want to help people. And I guess coming off the back of those lived experiences as well, like understanding why life coaching probably has been the most helpful thing for not only you, but then also the people that you work with. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what's fascinating is that I was in my final year of psychology when I was looking for a psychologist and I found it really difficult to know what person to look for. And if I had a three-year degree behind me at that point, how is a layperson meant to find the right therapist for them when I was supposedly meant to be trained in this and I still couldn't figure out which, which type of therapy, whether it's psychodynamic or CBT or all of those things. Um, the reason why I... All of this is said in hindsight, because at the time, as I said, I was very much lost and had no clue how to help myself. But knowing what I know now, and because the world is a lot more open to it, there are types of therapy. So the opposite to, or an alternative to talking therapy are therapies which are called somatic therapies. And it's more about getting in your body. So I have a belief that feelings exist in your body. They are energy within your body. We call emotions energy in motion. And so in order to feel and heal your feelings, everyone says feel your feelings, no one tells you how to do it. Um, you actually have to go in your body. So when you feel anger, you actually feel it in a physical location in your body it might be a tight ball in your heart it might be a fluttery feeling in your stomach and every person will be different but if you actually put your attention on that spot so let's say it's a ball in your heart and you put your attention on that spot and you breathe into it you will notice that physical sensation will change it might move to your head it might move down to your stomach and um, it might go from a tight ball to a loose but uncomfortable feeling. And that's why that discomfort, that um, pain, and often when you first start feeling your feelings, it actually increases the intensity of the feeling before it dissipates. That um, uncomfortableness, that discomfort is what actually discourages us from feeling our feelings. The problem is if you live in a body like mine, which is a scarred body, a body that is plus size, you live in a world where, um, the world doesn't make it a very safe place to be in your body. And if you're not in your body, and people use different words around this, so like associating within your body, um, being present within your body, if you're not able to do that, that's why when you say something like, where is your anger sitting, someone will respond, I have no clue. Because you've had a whole lifetime of being taught that your body is not a safe place. And so you've disassociated, especially around things like PTSD, or if you've lived in a trans body where it's just unsafe in the world to be in your body disassociating is something that happens a lot and so within my life coaching journey 
I did a type of training where you also had to be the client as well. So every time you learned an exercise, you got to be the coach and the client, which was one of the most invaluable parts of my training because I actually got to experience it. And with each one of those, I realized that I had actually lost so much connection with my body. No wonder I wasn't feeling my feelings. And if I had felt it earlier, I truly believe I would have never got PTSD. It's because I was so wrapped in like, Uh, phrasing like you should be grateful you should be happy you're so lucky you have the best medical care in the world you're so lucky we punctured your intestines because we discovered your brain tumor like it sounds ridiculous and it is ridiculous to me as a 30 year old but that genuinely got said to me as an 11 year old because there's so much around um, illness that we get told that you have to have a positive outlook in order to have a positive outcome so they didn't want me to be angry they didn't want me to be sad and actually they tried to diagnose me with depression at 11 years old two weeks after I found out about brain tumor and looking back I'm like what that makes no sense and there are aspects of traditional psychology I have issues with around over medicalizing a very normal human reaction if you told any adult that they had a brain tumor after being in hospital for three months and having had five surgeries in the last three months and then on top of that you've now found out you've got a brain tumor the normal human reaction is sadness anger all of the negative emotions which to try to like medicalize that and turn it into depression rather than looking at the situation and the context that all of those feelings are brought up in is one of the reasons why I was drawn to life coaching. And also another reason that I was drawn to life coaching is that you do have more flexibility. There's a positive and a negative to that. So uh, life coaching isn't... Uh, there isn't a board that oversees life coaching in the same way of psychology, which means there are lots of rubbish life coaches out there. Anyone can call themselves a life coach and you don't need qualifications. I happen to have qualifications because I think it's important, but there are many who don't. So be very careful when choosing a life coach. That flexibility, though, allows you to do things differently. And so, for example, one of the trainings that we had within traditional psychology was to have what they call a therapist face, like a stone cold, you don't react to the things being said. And I found that very hard as a client, because when you say your worst trauma in your life and someone isn't reacting, it it felt like they either weren't listening or that like it was an inhuman experience because I'm like, this is just more human for someone to react. That's in their training. That is how it's to not... Um, like put on their own feelings and their own impression on what you're talking about. And it completely makes sense for some people. For me, it didn't work. And so with a life coach, you do have more flexibility around, you can react to things, you can um, also give advice, which is largely discouraged in the therapy space. Um, And I just found when it was like, especially in the early days of dating in your early 20s where you made mistakes, I would go to my life coach and be like, can you just tell me if this is a bad guy to date? And she'd be like, this is a bad guy to date. (laughs) Whereas you can't, as a psychologist, you can't say that. It would be more so something like, what do you feel about it? Um, And to be honest, that's great for someone who's had a relationship with their body and knows how they feel in their body. But for someone who hadn't developed trust with myself, who doesn't know how to make decisions, and also someone who has a history of making bad decisions, I couldn't tell what I was feeling. And it took me about eight years to to really understand like what I feel and how what I need in life, what I want. 
And in those eight years, I could have made a lot of bad mistakes, but I did have my life coach saying, I'm not going to tell you not to date him, but I don't think this is going to have a positive impact. Or um, there was a point when actually I was getting a lot of rejections for my first book. And I started dating this guy who like, I just completely forgot about my work. I just went into that world and, um, yeah, I compl- and because I was getting rejections for my book, it was very easy to go into that world and forget about work. And my life coach at the time said, if you give up on this book, you are going to regret it. And this guy will be a speck in your memory. And you're to give it up for him, who's not even reciprocating your feelings, like he wasn't traveling down to London, was saying like all kinds of excuses to not see me. She was like, you are really going to regret it. And to this day, I'm so grateful. I mean, I've got four books out. I'm so grateful. <laughs> she said that but at the time I didn't have the perspective or the knowledge to know that myself yeah it's so interesting as well like in terms of I also feel we're we're just big sponges for a lot of our childhood and we absorb so much of the things that we're told we should feel about certain situations and so as we're growing up like even as you said you know we don't have autonomy over our feelings for the most part we're, we're told that we should be angry with certain things but we shouldn't with others and we have to be positive and you know even as I've got older in particular as the online space has grown there's so much that I see at the moment about oh we should have a positive mindset we should be feeling this oh but if, if you only just manifest your way to that you know there's mm-hmm. all these things that we're being fed that I think make us feel as though we are in complete control of our emotions and I almost think that's a fallacy in the sense that like we're not <laughs> and we can learn to be in control of ourselves and we can learn to create that association as you said within our bodies but actually it's a learned practice it's not something that I think many of us are automatically born or or, or grown grown up with so I find it really interesting what you said about you know even that fact that you said it took you eight years to develop that level of trust within your within yourself and with your emotions because it really helps others to recognize that it's not their fault sometimes that they can't learn to connect with those things inside of them or or learn to, to, to have that sort of sense of positive thinking or whatever it is that they're trying to do, that it's a learned practice. Yeah, and I also think that it's so wonderful that now we have a greater conversation around toxic positivity and the effects of that and how yes. constant <laughs> positive is actually quite negative. Mm. Um, I think rather than positive thinking, it's more about being authentic to yourself. So yes, before every feeling, there is a thought. And if you constantly think negative thoughts or like the world is ending you will feel like the world is ending so that you have some element of control at the same time if you feel hurt let's say you've just gone through a breakup and you feel hurt you telling yourself I'm not hurt I'm not hurt all's going to be okay I'm going to find someone better doesn't resolve the hurt you need to actually feel that hurt within you and denying it will make it stronger and also will not stop it from existing so talking yourself into the fact that you're positive you will feel more positive once you've actually felt the feeling absolutely love that now look I've I want us to move into very 2024 vision vibes (laughs) so I've kind of prefaced this conversation by talking about like reflection and self-development But I think that it's also important to obviously caveat that by saying that not all of that's going to be positive for some people. You know, there might be some people listening who've had a really tough year. Um, But just generally, for those who are listening who are wanting to start 2024 in a positive way, let's go to our first topic of boundaries from the Queen of Boundaries herself, the art of saying no. You know, you've written a whole book on this, so you are totally an expert in this area. And I genuinely believe that learning the skills of these two things, which I'm still on that journey of, (laughs) but, but learning these skills can be really life-changing um so firstly I just kind of want to understand I guess 
why we need to be good at setting boundaries? What do boundaries enable us to do and be? Yeah, so I think there's so much conversation around boundaries that people don't actually start from the beginning, which is the definition of boundaries, which is how we teach the world to treat you. It is all about treatment, what is and isn't acceptable. And you're determining the line because as I said, those two previous uh, incidences, I was allowing that behavior. Of course, they shouldn't have behaved that way. And that's not victim blaming. It's just... In order for me to continue in relationships like that, I'm telling them that it's okay to speak to me that way. And even if I don't end the relationship, it's saying something like, please do not speak to me that way. If you continue to speak to me that way, I'm going to leave the room and you can come find me when you're ready to talk to me in a more respectable manner. And it's those kind of conversations where you basically say, this isn't okay. This isn't going to work for me. And but in order for you to know your boundaries, you need to know you deserve to set boundaries. The problem is we live in a world where particularly women are told that they should put everyone before themselves. Uh, The beginning of my career was very much around body positivity and self love. And I just always found it really interesting that we would talk about self love, self care. But then the moment that you actually put yourself first, you're considered selfish, which is why my second book was called The Joy of Being Selfish. Because I was like, why is this word weaponized against women and only women? Because when you see men setting boundaries, they're called confident, self-assured. They're a great leader. He just knows what he wants. But then women do it and they're harsh. They're aggressive, difficult to work with. All of these words are ways which we discourage women to set boundaries. But not only that, I think it's so important to teach boundaries with good communication. And women get so much stick for being indirect communicators. But no one actually asks or questions why we got to that point. So everyone says like, oh, women are bitchy. We always talk behind people's back, all of those kind of things. But why do we do that? Well, we do that because when we di- when we communicate directly and we tell someone, hey, that's not going to work for me, all of these kind of boundaries lead us to being seen as a difficult woman or a hard woman. Um, and I think as a result, we learn to be more selfless. And we see that in our society as a as women like Mother Teresa are praised for being selfish. The best women in the world are always praised for being selfless, but I just don't think we need to forget ourselves, especially within activist spaces. You shouldn't have to completely burn yourself out in order to give give to others. You can look after yourselves at the same time, and it's okay to put yourself first because actually it's not optional a lot of people think that oh well self-care self-love all of that we but I also can take care of others but actually taking a very small instance if you need to rest on a Friday night you actually need to ignore your boss's need for a reply to that email or your boyfriend who wants you to attend that party you do need to ignore everyone else in order to meet your need for rest But a lot of the times we think, oh, we can do it all. And actually, that's just not very realistic. Mm. I think that the thing that um, becomes hard for people is I guess that maybe it's not setting the initial boundary that's the hard thing. Maybe they've learned to be like, oh, I'm going to stand up for myself. You know, let's use the example of a a work situation. So your boss has said, can you attend this? And you're like, actually, no. Uh, And you're able to assert that boundary. I think it's more like... The, the ramifications of setting that boundary that can actually affect people more. So it's not that they're struggling to set the boundary, it's that they're struggling to deal with the result of setting a boundary and there being 10 other women, you know, behind them who who are willing to go go that extra mile or not set that boundary so that they 
almost feel as though they're kind of losing out as a result of having some level of assertion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And especially in the workplace, there's this old adage of like, go above and beyond your job and order. Mm. And then you'll prove yourself that you're worthy of that promotion. But I actually see it the other way around. If you are doing the work of 20 people and you are doing the work of the above pay grade why should they pay you more if you're already doing it like that's the part that I and I truly believe in financial compensation and I think there's so much um conversation around female empowerment but no one talks about financial empowerment if you I mean you will know this from because we do similar enough jobs international women's day how many free jobs do you get to talk <laughs> about uh, women in female empowerment and it's like okay so the Pay gap isn't part of this conversation. And I just think we have to know our worth and we shouldn't have to prove that we are good enough for the promotion. By doing more, we should be proving that with the quality of our work. And yes, there might be someone who will go further than us and be willing be paid less but you deserve to have your work compensated and no one should have to work for free and no one should have to burn themselves out because ultimately you are very replaceable in a job and whereas your mental health is not replaceable and so you will have nothing left to give and I think especially when it comes to the workplace we create this double bind of if I set boundaries I'm going to get fired or I have to be a complete pushover and there is somewhere in the middle where you can just say especially when it comes to events a lot of people give these long explanations why they can't attend and actually all you need to say is unfortunately I'm unavailable that weekend but I hope it's a great event uh, looking forward to seeing you in the future that's it yeah it's yeah. not rude it's not and I think a lot of the times when you give a reason you turn a decision you've made into a discussion. So when you say, oh, I have, let's say you're talking to a friend and you say, oh, I have all this work to do. Like I can't make it to your house party, whatever it is. Your friend goes, well, how about you do the work this evening and then you can you can make it for the weekend. They think it's their problem to solve because you've given them so much information and they actually are trying to solve that problem as a positive thing and instead you're perceiving it as greater pressure to attend and so that's why if you say less with all boundaries actually say less is usually better so interesting yeah you're absolutely right like I, I am that person and, and I know we're going to come on to people pleasing but I'm that person that if I like can't attend something it's it's a long email it's like oh god I'm so sorry I've got this and I really try to make it work and blah blah, blah. <laughs> and actually you're absolutely right you basically open it up for discussion rather than just being like I can't attend thanks so much for inviting me but no you know I also think in the nice way like you're not that important in the same way like I say that to a lot of people where because there is this actual psychological thing called the spotlight effect where because we are in our heads our whole days we think other people think about us more than they do and actually the event person just wants to know the numbers they don't need to know all your reasons why you can't attend and I think it's really the reason why I say you're not that important is because I had um that life lesson myself where I my housemate wanted to throw a party and I thought there's no way she can throw a party without me because I always do the cooking and blah 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 and someone said it to me was like you're not that important she can throw a house party without you and I was like Oh yeah, true. Like every every human is important, but you're not that essential to every person's life. But because especially people pleasers will have that narrative in their head, like, well, how will they survive without me? They're not going to be able to drive themselves to the doctor's appointment. We have all of these narratives and it's so important to sift through all of that and figure out what's fact and what have I made up in my head to make myself feel more important than I am. 
Yeah. I always like, I, I've been told that a couple of times more recently about like, you're not that important. And I know it sounds like kind of like a mean thing to say, but it's actually really helpful. You know, like I, I'm not really gonna, you know, I, I, I've obviously been ill this week and I've had to cancel quite a few things. And my, even my approach to doing that, I've been like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like even like the fact that I had to send a picture of my COVID test and be like, oh my God, by the way, like, I'm so sorry. I'm ill, I promise. Like it's such a, it's such a weird need that we have to like almost like soften other people's feelings rather than just owning like the fact that you, you know, and I've actually re- I've really noticed it. Even just my partner and I, like he's still doing meeting stuff. He's also ill and like how he approaches being like, yeah, I'm not going to come versus me. And I think definitely there being this like difference in, in how different, I guess maybe work, work environments, well, I mean, Paddy works in finance, so it's very different, but like that, that how we've approached those conversations of saying that we can't attend things has been really different. Um, and I think that it kind of leads me on to my next thing, which is, which is, I guess the art of saying no, you know, like, and I think that that's such a huge thing that you talk about and no could mean many things. It doesn't necessarily even just have to be in a kind of, um, social setting. It can be in, in many different ways that we need, we need to use and empower ourselves with the art of saying no. But I, first of all, I guess just wanted to ask why we find it so difficult to say no. And I know this isn't everyone and we're obviously generalizing because there are going to be some people who are like, hang on a second, I say no all the time. But for many of us, and I think particularly as women, it can be really difficult to just learn to say no. So why is that? I do think the people who find it easy are the minority. And like I always say, there wouldn't be a reason for me to write a book if it was that easy, because it's not. And one of my biggest hurdles around saying no was actually around the language, which is why in all of my books, I put literal text you can send and that's not to say you should actually send them as text but it's more so to provide the wording around it because yes I love the concept of boundaries yes I love the concept of saying no but sometimes no as one word is not appropriate way to set a boundary but how do you actually communicate to someone I don't like you talking about my body like that and actually having that phrasing is so important and I think the reason why we really struggle people pleasing is directly opposed to boundaries you cannot be both so you cannot have good boundaries and also caretake all the people around you one of the largest things is people worrying about the response I call it the boundary backlash there's so many things that can happen, whether it's calling you names, then ghosting you, not talking to you, any of these things, even ending the relationship. And I think ultimately you have to remember that no matter how polite you set the boundary, someone else can still perceive you as being rude. And no matter how nice you are, the other person can still perceive you as being mean and that their response is not your responsibility and that you can't control it because how someone reacts to boundaries is actually so much more about their relationship with boundaries too. So when I had no boundaries and someone set a boundary with me, first of all, I would think they were angry with me. Second of all, I would get very defensive. And third of all, I would probably try to talk them out of their boundary. So, but then I got good at boundaries and now someone sets a boundary with me and I'm like, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much for letting me know. I'm so glad you told me. That is actually my response now. But it's all about me. Nothing has changed other than my relationship with boundaries. So don't take it so personally when someone reacts to your boundary badly. But also, you can't just set a boundary once and then let it go. It's almost like, you know how in parenting, they're like, we're going to leave the playground if you do this one more time. And then it's empty threats because you're like, you never leave the playground. It's the same. Adults are just like grown up children 
children and you have to reinforce that boundary. So you set the boundary once, if they don't follow through, then you set a consequence. And then you actually have to set a consequence that you follow through on. And if you can't set, if you can't follow through on a larger consequence, set a smaller consequence. So rather than saying, if you speak to me like that, our relationship is over, saying something like, if you speak to me like that, then I'm going to leave the room. Or um, it's in a face-to-face situation, saying something like, this kind of uh, way of speaking is not leading to a productive conversation. And I need this conversation in order to be productive. So some ground rules are this, this, this is not what I'll tolerate in a conversation. Having those boundaries means that no matter who the person is, and that includes family, because one of the things that's largely taboo is cutting out family. Just because someone is blood doesn't mean they get to treat you differently than anyone else. I almost think it's worse though. I think with family, it's even harder because like, you're almost like you can't upset those people because they're your, you know, your ride or dies. Like they're your family. Whereas like, I feel like with friends, you know, there's part of you you that might feel, okay, well, if I have to leave this person, I have to lose this person. But it's so much more complex with family, right? Also, it's more complex with family because you have longer relationships. So the the, um, relationship is more ingrained. And so trying to change that dynamic is even harder it's why within dating I say people have this illusion of you have to be serious enough in order to set your boundary when actually it's the opposite because if you set a precedent for boundaries then it's much easier than trying to change the dynamic once it's already established unfortunately in family relationships you are changing a dynamic that's already established but I often give um, family a lot more grace around the fact that when you start setting boundaries you are changing. And that's going to be a shock to the people around you. So give them some grace, give them some time to adapt to it in the same way that you're adapting to setting boundaries. And the first time I set boundaries, it was clumsy, it was messy, it was not done in the right way. At times, it was probably a little bit too harsh. At times, it was probably a little bit too sloppy. At times, I forgot to set a consequence. But in the same way, you're learning a new language, they're also learning a new person. And maybe they preferred you without boundaries. And that sounds like an awful thing to say, but when someone has more boundaries, they are a person who is uh, more difficult to manipulate, more difficult to take advantage of. And if that was a person, whether consciously or not, whether maliciously or not, who liked the fact you didn't have boundaries, when you start having boundaries, it will be a big change for the relationship. Some relationships will survive it, some won't. In my life, because I was such a people pleaser, unfortunately, people pleasers don't make the best choices when it comes to the people in their life. I lost so many people, I started calling it the mass exodus. (laughs) And I don't even blame them, especially looking back now. I was like, they signed a contract to be in a relationship, whether it's a friendship, romantic relationship, whatever, with someone who said yes, who jumped on a train at the last moment, who forgot about herself and put them. And then overnight, I became the queen of boundaries. Of course, they did, that's not the contract they signed. So it, it wasn't when those relationships end, it wasn't me saying they're a bad person for not respecting my boundaries. It was just we're not the same people anymore. It makes sense that some of these relationships just have to go. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And I, and I actually want to broaden it to kind of really digging into relationships. I know that a lot of what we've spoken about here is quite sort of general and applicable to people, but just to narrow the conversation down, I guess, to um, romantic relationships and I guess specifically dating, I think a lot of these can be relevant for platonic relationships too. So let's kind of keep those two categories. But I guess like learning these things can really change relationships and I know that like you know for example if you've been in a relationship 
and you suddenly learn about, you know, friendship or otherwise boundaries or saying no, like that is going to change that dynamic. And I think for a lot of people, that's the, the scary thing. It's almost like they're, they're fearful of taking that power and having that, that, that level of assertiveness. And it means that like, almost in a way, I think some people can shy away from doing these things just because they're not ready or, or they're not willing or ready to have that sort of change in their relationship because they know that the chances of that relationship then maybe surviving is quite low. Like, I'm just going to use an example of myself. Like, when I left school, I I left a lot of friends. I only have one girl that I'm still in contact with really from my childhood friends. And that was because as I grew up and I did a lot of learning about who I was and what I, what I wanted from my relationships, I recognized that there were a lot of things that, oh, hell no, did I want for, you know, from those relationships. And as you said, like, that was a sad reality. You have to sort of go, well, these aren't really serving me in the way that I thought they were. And I need to unfortunately say goodbye to them. And I think for some people, there's there's a sense of being more comfortable with not acknowledging those things as in like you know holding on to them whether that be for you know sentimentality or, or whatever or just because that they're, they're people that I guess have been in your life for a long time but actually in having to like take control of these situations it is really uncomfortable it's an uncomfortable process and it does mean that you know for some people it is accepting you're going to lose friends you're going to lose I'm not saying you're going to because I don't want to guarantee it, but there might be some people who you lose as friends. There might be romantic relationships that unfortunately don't survive. But do you feel that it's still the best thing to do in order to actually like learn this, put yourself first, and as a result, have better relationships moving forwards? We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. If I'm being really honest, going back to that time where I was calling it the mass exodus, there was a time I questioned it and I went, am I doing the right thing? So many people have left my life in a few months that this can't be the right thing to do. And then two years later, my dad got cancer and it was one of the like one of those spotlight moments where I realized that actually the people who I had in my life two years ago wouldn't have been there for me and yes I had fewer friends now but the friends who I had were there for me in such a different way that I knew what friendship was previously and it was what it when I was going through that journey I was so worried about like everyone kept telling me oh uh, new people come into your life and better people because you have the boundaries now and my life coach kept saying this and it was really two years later that it was proved but it was very much for two years holding the faith that there are better friends out there and when I look back now I made a decision within a certain friendship group which I found there was so much bitching and most of the time when we met up we were always talking about the one member that was absent or the people who weren't there and I was just like I don't want this energy in my life and also I don't trust them anymore because I don't trust that when I'm not here they're gonna yes yeah that I hate that (laughs) what's funny is that I'm only friends with one person from that friendship group now someone who I actually chose and every time I meet up with her she is still talking about them and she's still complaining about the reason the exact reason I broke up with that friend about five years ago and it's just you know that saying about like if you want a different result you can't be doing the same thing over and over again I'm probably butchering the quote but it's you can't do the same thing and expect a different result I was like why are you like why why would I want to stay in that friendship group that isn't actually good friendship and 
I completely respect my friend's decision. She's clearly chosen to stay in those friendships. That clearly is what you were saying about the more comfortable decision. But when I see those things happen and I go for lunch with her, I sit there and I go, oh, I'm not sure my ex-friend would love to know that you're telling me about her relationship with her boyfriend I've never met. And Mm. she's not been in my life for four or five years. And you're telling me all this information that isn't yours to tell. And it it reaffirms the decision I made. But yes, there are two choices. You can keep those people in your life. But frankly, I do believe in if you keep bad quality friendships around you, bad quality relationships around you, you can't date someone and who treats you like rubbish, treats you at the, as the lowest priority on his list, their list, and and still think that highly of yourself to still have self-esteem because ultimately self-esteem is a very lofty concept but self-esteem ultimately is thinking highly of yourself and also knowing what you deserve and if you're in these friendships and going well I can't replace them I'll be lonely you're lonely in the friendships you're lonely in the relationship just having people around and I think so much of it as well is about just being like well, what else is, you know, what, what are my other options? I know that for a lot of it for me was just like, well, you know, this is the best that I can get. So I might as well just stick with it. But I absolutely relate to what you were saying about this, like complete lack of safety in friendships, like feeling as though the moment you leave that person, they're going to be bitching about you to the next person or feeling as though like, if you don't go to something, no one's really going to care that you're not there or they'll be talking about why you're not there. You know, I remember feeling this like, ultimate pressure to have to attend so many things because if I wasn't there oh my god I was worried that that they would be talking about me and they'd all be you know and 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 also then like recognizing that when you were there but someone else wasn't they'd be doing exactly the same thing about that person and it's just like I see this so much in in particular I'm sorry to say it but particularly female friendships it's like these group dynamics which are you know for the outset they look like what we all want right we want this big group of girlfriends that are all so happy and you know, we all love each other so much, but the reality is that the more women that I speak to, um, and the more that I reflect on my own experience, the more I recognize that there's just so much unsafety sometimes in those friendships. And, you know, if they were to learn a little bit more boundary setting, a little bit more, um, I guess, honesty with each other, that there would be a recognition of that. But, but going back to my point about being comfortable, sometimes it just feels more comfortable to be in rather than be out. And, and then that's a really difficult decision that some people make. We have to remember it's uncomfortable to be in those friendships to begin with. All exactly. of the moments <laughs> where you're having that anxiety before going to a party or you're having an anxiety because you're having to say no to your friend and you're worried they're never going to invite you again. That is discomfort. It's just different discomfort. Mm. So it's more difficult. Exactly. Now let's move on to romantic relationships because I know that for some people they're going to be setting out 2024 is my year. I'm going to meet the love of my life. I'm here for it. And I totally support you with that. But better dating in 2024. Let's go there. What are your key tips? I know that you've written a whole book on this. So I want to really know like the rundown of what are the good things that people should be aiming to do in their romantic relationships or pursuit of them in 2024. So the selfish romantic is actually about both because I believe two things are hand in hand. You can't actually be good at dating if you don't love being single. So you have to love that alone time. And as I said, when you lose friends, maybe it's not even just actually ending friendships, but more so when your friends are all growing up 
they've got their partners, they've got their kids, and maybe you don't, you have more alone time. And you don't want to fill that space with just anyone, you need to get okay with being alone. And then you can go into dating, not believing that single is the worst consequence. Because when you have that mindset of I need a relationship, because I don't want to be single anymore. And I was single for eight years, it leads to you settling for behavior that you wouldn't otherwise tolerate. And when I say I'm, I was single for eight years, it's really funny because I used to always get so many comments around like pity or like, oh, you're so picky or like you're you're clearly not looking enough and all of these comments. But actually, I was very happy single and I loved being single because when, what I viewed dating as was meeting new people and I find people interesting. It's the psychology part of me. And so I'd go on the dates rather than seeing it as pass or fail if I got a second date or me going on dates and trying to impress someone. I saw it more just as curiosity to meet new people. And I went on a date. I, I always find we have this intention of getting a relationship out of every day. And I found that quite negative. So one of my top tips is actually going on dates with a different intention. Now I don't go on dates. Well, I'm in a relationship now, but I didn't go on dates uh, in a with the intention of anything, just having fun. But to baby set myself away from the goal of getting a relationship, I set small mini goals. So like when I went on a date, I'd be like, my focus for this date is I'm going to ask more questions. I'm going to get better at listening. I'm going to try to learn one new thing from this guy. And actually focusing on that rather than focusing on how do I convert this first date into a relationship led to such a much more positive experience. Because if I walked away from that date and I was better at listening on that date, I'm really awful at interrupting. So that was one of my dates was like, interrupt less I could walk away and feel really positive because I was like I spent a great evening with a lovely guy whether I get a second date or not I've learned something new he was really interesting around uh I dated a golf professional um once and I learned a lot about golfing which I didn't know I think I was interested in I'm probably not interested in but I know more about golfing now and also I walked away from it like okay well now I interrupt less my next date will be better because I can interrupt less um and it was those small building steps and actually just enjoying the evening for what it was and making the date something I actually wanted to do as well so that they were never a waste of time even if the person in front of me wasn't particularly interesting I think that's such a good yeah that's such a good point because I think so many of us can I remember back to when I was dating which feels like a long time ago now but I just put so much pressure on these things being like the one that like the whole like lead up to it was so pressurized the date was pressurized and then when it wasn't necessarily the one I left and I felt so deflated and almost as though like I'd done something wrong and I think that like if we can just see it in a more kind of curious and fun way then absolutely you reframe what the experience is and you're able to view it in such a more kind of relaxed way and as much as I do understand like this is a thing like I can say all of those things but I do understand that for some people like they're desperate to meet someone they're desperate to meet their person Person. And I get that. And I do think that like, as much as you can go with all your heart and try and be like, this is just a curious meeting. And I'm just going to be really chill and relaxed. <laughs> you know, like ultimately underpinning that is, you know, whether, whether you're going to have a future with someone or not. And that's a huge thing. But I guess trying to even as you say, like make them enjoyable experiences, there can still be pressure on it, but maybe you're just going to a really nice restaurant that you like or to a bar that you love or doing an activity that you really enjoy so that, you know, even though there's that pressure on it, you're still 
maybe not thinking so much about the outcome and more about the experience? Yeah, so I'm very realistic around the fact that that feeling of really desperately wanting that person that exists in most women, particularly, and you're not going to eradicate that. So you don't have to love being single, but you need to stop hating it. And it's it needs to not be the worst consequence in the world. What needs to be the worst consequence is ending up in a bad relationship. So yes, you want the one you want the future, but you don't want the future with just anyone. And I think Mm. that's a really clear distinction. And it took me being in a bad relationship to learn that that actually the moment we broke up and I did end it um it was that moment of relief and all the first thought that came into my head is all that time and energy could have gone towards myself because it was at the phase in my PTSD um that I was like can you imagine if I'd actually put that time and energy towards myself not someone who didn't appreciate it and definitely didn't give it back and so you have to remember that you're not searching for just anyone and it's going to take time if you think about how many friends you could live with that's already quite a small number then you think about how many friends you could also travel with that's a smaller number and then you think you also want the romantic aspect and the uh, sexual element you're not going to meet well I mean if you do you're very lucky but the chance of you meeting that ideal person on the first date and unconsciously I say this in my book but I was going on every first date almost imagining it was my last first date and Mm. what I realized is by going doing that it was putting so much pressure on the date and all of these things aren't helping you find someone faster they were actually doing the opposite because every time I was lending up ending up in one of these relationships for the sake of a relationship I was actually not out there looking for someone who actually met my criteria one of the greatest ways to take the pressure off is instead of trying to impress that person which is always a difficult thing to do because you're always going to be changing yourself in order to try to attain that um, focus on whether they're impressing you and then you will turn up more authentically because one of the things that happens when you're single for a really long time and I speak from experience is you get told all of these dating rules that are absolute nonsense like men don't like strong opinionated women uh, which was one thing I heard a lot (laughs) look I'm not changing anytime soon I am strong I opinionated I am a bit of a force and some guys are very intimidated by that the number of guys who I went on a date with and called me intimidated I'm just not your person like I just need to accept that but if I went around pretending to be a quiet person first of all it wouldn't last very long but then I'd attract a guy who is into quiet women and then what we get into a relationship the mask drops and he's like who the hell is this person this isn't the person I've been dating it doesn't work and so all of these illusions of like well let's just make myself more dateable you're just acting like a person you aren't men are not a monolith there is no such rule as men don't like loud women men don't like opinionated women some men do and some men don't but in order to find the ones who like what you are you actually have to be yourself oh my god yes I love it now look I think that all of that is brilliant and if you have the confidence to enter into those situations and be authentically yourself then great And I think that that's obviously what we want people to do. But alongside of that, there is obviously going to be some element, sadly, of rejection in dating. It's it's, uh, the unfortunate and painful side. And, you know, none of us enjoy that feeling of basically being told that we're somehow not quite right. And as much as you can have all the confidence in the world, you can be authentically yourself, if anything, actually even more painfully so if you are authentically yourself and someone's like, yeah, not for me, you know. Um, 
I think that rejection is a, a really tricky thing to go through. And I would love to hear your advice on, on how you coach people through dealing with rejection. Yeah, so I have a chapter in my book that's literally called How Do You Get Over a Relationship That Wasn't a Relationship? Because I'm <laughs> that person who used to We've cry all been there, right? We've all been, had one date with someone, imagined our whole life with them, and they're like, yeah, no, not for me. <laughs> not even one date. There were, I remember there was a specific guy right after the pandemic, I went, I, I had four dates booked with four guys and all four cancelled on me because of COVID. And I genuinely, by the fourth one, was in a ball of tears. And I was just like, what? What, like, and I want to go on a date because as I said I loved being single but I loved being single to date and obviously the pandemic was not ideal for that and so I was in a ball being like I've not even met these guys but that's what we do we invalidate it that's the first thing we say it wasn't even a date I never even met him um and all of those things mean, oh, I'm not allowed to have these emotions. But let's be realistic. Dating apps are weird. Being able to meet someone through technology is weird. Being able to have long conversations over text where you form an attachment to a person you haven't met is weird. But it doesn't matter why you have the emotion. You have the emotion for a number of things, whether it's tapping into a childhood rejection wound or whether it is the fourth thing in a row that's just tipped you over the edge. And actually, we just need to learn to stop invalidating it. I don't care how serious it was. I don't care how many dates you've been on. If you feel hurt and you feel rejection, you are allowed to feel that. That's where you start from. And that actually is a really healthy thing for someone who has self-esteem to actually go, it doesn't matter why I feel this way. What I'm feeling is valid. And it doesn't matter how how, how serious it was and there's no um, benchmark for seriousness that allows my emotion and then also stop perceiving it as rejection that's the other part where I, I remember so many of my clients used to say things like um oh I've been on I, I've I, I matched with seven people yesterday and all of them unmatched me and I was like how do you know that were you watching it because like, if you're watching it, you're waiting for a rejection. You don't need to know that stuff. If you match with someone, send them a message, send bulk send messages if you want, which actually I always found was a little bit easier, was send bulk messages. And then don't track how many don't reply. Instead, just set your notifications on for when you get a reply. So when they reply, you actually, that's the part you care about. You're focusing on the replies, not how many people are matching you. So unless, because especially on things like Bumble, where it's up at the top, it disappears after 24 hours. You won't know how many unmatch you unless you're actually tracking it. I always find it really weird with authors as well who could say, oh, I got rejected by 42 publishers. I'm like, how do you know that? Why are you watching that? Why are you counting that? You're putting your focus on the wrong thing. So reducing the amount of rejection and then also accepting that no matter how much you reduce what you perceive as rejection you can still feel rejection and allowing yourself to feel it that's so important to understand because I think I know like so many of us can feel like this deep sense of rejection and also that it then start to make us question things about ourselves you know like was I too much of this was I that and that's a horrible way to be so I always think that like yeah rejection is is a, ho is a horrible part of dating but actually you're right don't see it as such oh another thing remember that they're a stranger so if they're unmatching you on a dating app they don't know you. They haven't met you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting your profile. And going back to the author analogy, they're rejecting your book. They're not rejecting you. So it's I see it that way. And I, that's why I make that comparison. And then also, it's the fact that they they are going to be making decisions based off their past dating experience. So if they have dated someone who was loud and opinionated before, and that meant they were really stubborn, that 
all of these things. It doesn't necessarily mean just because you're loud and opinionated, you are also stubborn too, but they've created that association and you're not going to fix that association in their head without even meeting them. So if they've made that decision, it's not necessarily about you, but also they are doing it based off the information they have. They don't have the full picture anyway. Yeah, I do feel that like all of that's really relevant. And I think that rejection is probably like that like first initial feeling that one might feel when they're on the dating journey. But I think that the second one that people might encounter, and I think particularly at the start of the year, it's always good to talk about this, but dealing with heartbreak, you know, like I remember certain heartbreaks that I've had feeling like so visceral, so physically painful. And it's almost like a specific type of grief, isn't it? That we can feel when we're going through it, that I think that like, it's, it's so hard to give advice on because it's probably one of the most painful, like when I think about what I've gone through, there's definitely been some, some difficult times, but I think heartbreak is almost like such a niche specific feeling. And I'd love to hear how you help people go through heartbreak, come out the other side, feeling better off. And particularly at the start of the year, if someone's going through it, like what is your best advice for dealing with heartbreak? So I think you hit the nail on the head in the question actually, because heartbreak is about grief. And a lot of times people try to process heartbreak break is sadness and sadness and grief are not the same so what comes with grief that doesn't come with sadness is usually a large sense of apathy so when you're going through heartbreak and you feel the grief but you also don't care about anything else in your life people often go into a further spiral because they were like well, my work doesn't mean as much. My friends don't mean as much. My family doesn't mean as much without realizing that that's the actual part of the emotion. Like you're not feeling that by accident. It's not that your work is actually rubbish. It's not that your friends are rubbish and your family's rubbish. It's actually because grief has an accompaniment of this apathy, which means that nothing else matters, which can be a great thing in some aspects because it means you have really great perspective at that time. But obviously not caring about much in the world can make you feel a bit lost too. Um, I think one of the main things I do within heartbreak is there's not a lot of um, solutions for the agony that is and it is it will feel like your heart's breaking that's actually the emotion within your heart and it can feel like physical pain because as I said emotions are energy in motion and that's why that feels like a physical pain what worsens that pain or betters it is the behavior you do and so you don't want to be opening doors back up to exes because you're feeling that way reminding yourself that you miss what how they made you feel more so than the person themselves and also writing a list so it's about getting back into that rational brain when you're in such an emotional place and having somewhat something accessible so I really recommend doing it in the notes app of your phone of every single reason why you broke up because unfortunately another thing that happens out of heartbreak is you tend to romanticize the relationship and change it in your head and so you're you're then grieving a loss that actually didn't exist because you've created a fantasy and you're grieving a fantasy which having that evidence-based list and doing it quite shortly after a breakup if you've ever got a heat of like anger or like that is uh, anger is one of the only negative emotions that creates energy using that to create the list means you have something to look back on having a go-to friend to text rather than texting them and also doing things that make it easy for you so deleting their number deleting it off deleting them off social media you deserve time to heal and 
when you make it more difficult for you to do things like that, a lot of people will go, oh, well, that's a bit extreme. I don't need to do it. We're not doing it for the empowered women sitting in front of me. We're doing it for the 2am version who is lonely, probably a little bit drunk, maybe a little bit horny, who is reaching out and you're doing it for that woman. <laughs> so we all have that version of us inside of us. We have the most empowered version, but you have to remember you're not always going to be the most empowered version. And so having those tools, like having them blocked on social media, I do think you can be friends maybe in a year two years I it's never been my bag but I appreciate some people do but you definitely need a period of separation to actually allow yourself to heal and get a bit of perspective because I think that emotion does cloud how you view the relationship I am also of the of the camp that doesn't believe in being friends like with exes I just I'm just I just find that crazy but yeah anyway I know it works for some people which is totally fair enough not for me (laughs) um I really want to end on a positive note Michelle we've gone on such a journey today and I honestly I can't thank you enough but um you know talking about the new year and new intentions and stuff creating meaningful change within us is something that I think a lot of us will want to do as we set out on 2024. I think, you know, as much as I'm like yawn when people say, oh, new year, new me. Um, I also think that it is a nice bit of a like fresh start to be able to create, like I said, some like meaningful intentions for the year ahead. So what is your best advice when it comes to creating meaningful change from within? What do you think people should be working on within themselves, um, you know, more generally for 2024? Something I really noticed this year is that we are a culture and definitely a generation of people who already absorb a lot of self-help advice and like personal development, whether it's on social media or podcasts or all of that. But we very rarely take it and then take action after we learn the thing. So rather than reading 40 books a year or 100 books, books a year read one book and then actually stop and write down all the things that you're going to practically put in your life um or listen to a podcast take away your learnings but then how are you actually going to put it into your life um within my books I actually have take action sections for that and one of the things I do around like boundaries is we set the benchmark so high around setting boundaries that it has to be perfectly the first time or I'm not going to do it at all but one of the things for example where you can practically baby step it into your life is start with how you text people. So texting is so demonized as like bad communication. But actually, as a former hothead, I found it really hard to have difficult conversations without yelling or um, saying mean things, if I'm being really honest. And texting was one of those tools that really helped me because I could actually, even just if it was starting the conversation over text and saying something like, hey, that thing you said to me last week has been sitting in me a bit and I don't really like what you said to me. Could we have a conversation about it? Um, Because I don't want things like that to happen again. And it, it would start on text and then we'd have a phone call about it. But actually... I think because on text, you can impulsively hit that send button. I would just impulsively hit that send button and then hide my phone and put on airplane mode somewhere in my house. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of illusion around people like me who are in the personal development industry that we are perfect. But genuinely, if you saw how many times I hid my phone, I sent scary messages and like, and they're not scary, but like scary to that person, but they're scary for me to send. I'm still sending it. And it's about the behavior. So doing things scared, I think is one of the best pieces 
pieces to take into the new year that anytime you do something new it's going to be scary setting boundaries for the first time is going to be scary but the more you do it the easier it gets but actually the taking action part is what we need we don't actually need to be learning more you've probably already everyone knows what they should be doing but it's about actually doing it I love that piece of advice because I think you're right like I I'm that person like I start to before I'm like right these are the books on my list <laughs> tick 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 and actually you're right like it's a it's about um you know being able to um I guess properly take action from them there's so much that we even just going on to Instagram there's so much that we can absorb and it's just about kind of actually being able to properly take action yeah absolutely Michelle I cannot thank you enough for today I feel like this has been such a great chat the best first episode of 2024 for us to put out I really hope it's been helpful for those who are listening and I just love your approach to being authentically yourself, I would say that, that that that's how I would, well, from what I know of you, I would describe you as that. And it's really, you know, inspiring to see someone who's gone on that journey to really discovering who they are and, and what they want to put out in the world. And I, I really appreciate your time and your energy today. So thank you so much. If people want to find Michelle, she's on Instagram. We'll put all of the links in the show notes. And also Michelle's book on relationships is out in, is it out in hardback? Yeah, it's out in paperback. On the 4th of January. So if you want to check that out, then I will put the link in the show notes as well. Michelle, thank you so much. Have a great 2024. And thank you for being a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for having me on. you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group